Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachna. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hello and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Wednesday, August 9th, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. Those and we'll pick this up because I got kicked off the switchboard. So we are grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the two words that they start here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And that chapter of that book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using the great effect for 19 years now to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. If you choose to do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you choose to tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. We help people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively 
engage these tools. And secondarily, because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials, the more people apply these tools in their lives. And if you have any of those to share with us, please do so. Give us a call at 563-999-3581 and press 1 on your phone. That will put the little icon of a hand by your phone number. I'll turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code, and we can have a conversation. Alternatively, you can send us an email. You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org, or you can email Jeannie at j-e-a-n-i-e at whyagain.org. That's w-h-y-a-g-a-i-n.org. If we get a comment or a question from you through the email, we will address it on the Internet show and then as time allows, send you a notification about the day and time that we responded. And um, you can check back, listen to the archives uh, for the feedback. The archives, now that I've said that word, is um, uh, another wonderful support tool that Michael and Jeannie make available. And um, I use it on a regular basis to... Uh, catch up on shows I wasn't able to listen to live and review shows that um, spoke to me or raised issues for me or uh, had me choosing a an interpretation for them that was so intense that it's stirred up negative emotional processing for me to go back and clarify so please um, feel free to make use of that resource as well that's the archive and some of the special uh, highlight shows from this that are from the archives are available on the mindshiftersacademy.org website some of them are on the best of audio files page some of them are on the audio files page some of them are on separate pages to do with the uh, way of mastery so um, we also welcome your input about uh, particular shows that you found of value that you think should be highlight shows and or uh, feedback about uh, people that you think we, 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 should, we would benefit from interviewing either for this show or for my On Your Mind podcast. And... Um, please feel free to make a suggestion for either of those. We had our support group last night, and so we had a a series of um, discussions around Michael Singer's conversation. He's doing a series of lectures that I've purchased that are related to his book, The Untethered Soul. And it's a very detailed, deep dive into those concepts and essentially uh, what what is a yogi what, from the Eastern tradition? What, what are the wisest people who've looked into spirituality? 
how do they look at life? How do they think about life? How do they move forward with less upset? How do they learn to ride the waves of life without fighting it? And um, so we listen to some more of uh, the content of his, I think it's about a 12 or 13 hour series of talks he has collected there. And um, we're only three or four hours into it, and we've done it for quite a while on this Tuesday support group um, in that Tuesday support group gathering. So um, I think it is, um, well, I know that for a long time when I did just the um, Tuesday group, it was so much a highlight of my life that after about nine or ten years, I forget which now, I decided to expand my office and create a space where I could have another night of the week where I invited people to gather and work on these tools. And so now I've had uh, Tuesday and Thursday night groups. And um, it remains um, a big, positive infusion of energy in my week even when it's challenging even when we have people who are struggling with um, whatever life is bringing them and they're having a great difficulty choosing love choosing for joy Um, they may have difficulty because they don't even understand the value of canceling a goal whenever they're mental emotional state generates negativity in the face of that goal Um, you know Michael was talking yesterday about the um, his daughter-in-law they say daughter-in-love whose father died and um, this is a very recent death and this is a young woman um, and his father, her father was not at all near death as far as they were concerned. It was a, a very abrupt, some would say a tragic accident where he was crushed by a tree when he was working at cutting down a tree. And most of us in this culture would say, of course she's going to have deep grief and wailing of gnashing of teeth, and of course she's going to be devastated, and of course she's going to have a long grieving period, etc. And some people generate a tremendous amount of negativity and anger and frustration at even the suggestion that there's a way to move through a life experience like that that is less than um deeply traumatic and life-altering and I'll never be the same, etc. And yet, Michael was talking about how as he was listening to his daughter-in-law and she would get upset looking at different things around the house that reminded her of her father, Michael coached her to simply identify the goal that was coming up in that moment and cancel the goal and ask to be shown what's underneath it 
and she would move from this anguish and upset into this joyful, loving memory and a sense of the loving connection with her father. And then minutes later, she would look at something else and she would have the sadness or the pain come up again. And Michael would coach her. What, what goal are you aware of in this moment? What happens if you breathe and soften and let go of cancel that goal? And incident by incident, image by image, thought by thought, goal by goal, as Michael was coaching her to step through that, she was, as quickly as it was coming up, or, or almost as quickly as it was coming up, she was releasing and moving through the pain, the fear, the sadness, and reconnecting with the loving energy that is her true nature, was her father's true nature, is her father's true nature, etc., and I really get it. I've been doing this support group stuff for 19 years now. And I really understand when people want to argue with that and say, it feels to me like you're telling me that my emotions are bad or wrong, etc. And it's quite the challenge to help people understand that we're not attacking the emotions, even if they are intense, even if you would label them negative. We're not saying there's anything bad or wrong with them. What we're saying is they are informational. They carry really useful information with them. You can learn to tap into that. You can learn to breathe through it, keep the breath moving, as Michael was coaching his daughter-in-law the other day. You can wake up to how you are creating your experience of those energies. You're the one determining what they mean for you. You're the one who either decides we're having a period of mourning or we're creating a celebration of life. You you can be the one, you are the one who decides, even if you don't realize you're doing it, to either step into denial and suppression or resistance and rage or something else, something more akin to gratitude and appreciation and appreciate what? How can I appreciate that, uh, that my father got killed unexpectedly? Well, maybe you can't find a way to appreciate that your father got killed unexpectedly. And in the next moment, whenever you're ready, you can move into appreciation for the life you have still and the life you had with your father and you know, step into a, a pattern of celebration of appreciation and gratitude for that relationship and all you learned from it or or not you can also as we've been so well schooled to do through our culture you can also step into um, a very intense painful slog of anger and resistance and resentment and anger at god and anger at you know trees anger at anyone or anything that your mind can 
create a belief about that might be a target for blame. And and we're free to do that. The, the key in this work is we're not taught that we're free to do that. We're not taught about the active role we play in the creation of our emotions and in the creation of our belief about the meaning of life as it unfolds. And as I've talked about a couple times recently on the show, it's come to me lately to understand sometimes, like the worksheets I did last week and the journaling, somebody labels that as doing a really deep dive and really digging in and working hard and digging deep. And it, it came to me, whether it was in a support group last night, last week or, or in a session with somebody, that it isn't really me digging deep. It's me putting aside the denial and the suppression. It's me canceling the tightness and tension and resistance within me and basically just moving the denial and the suppression off to the side. And when I do that, it's like taking the manhole cover off the manhole and whatever's in there is free to move up and out. And sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes I just go blank or unconscious and other times I start shaking with energy or sobbing or getting insights. It's not so much about digging deep as it is about allowing. It's about stopping the process that I've been engaging in mentally and emotionally and that I've been trained into with my family and my culture and my thoughts and my beliefs that keeps me locked in the pain, the fear, and the sadness. It's putting that aside and allowing something else to bubble up into my awareness. And I get it. I, 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 I've, I've had people create very negative responses to any suggestion that they can move through their grief more quickly with efficiency, that they can, uh, let's, let's call it more efficiently, move from the deep pain of grief and loss into the appreciation for the experience of life and the people that they've had in their lives. And I've experienced that kind of pushback for decades, even before I met Dr. Michael Rice, because I had created this process for grief and loss. I used to call it the termination process, and now it's called uh, saying goodbye to good people without saying goodbye to good memories. And I, I taught it for years, and Eventually, in 2014 or 2015, I I forget when it was, I finally got a good recording of it when I gave a two-hour workshop on it. And even in that, even before I'd met Dr. Rice, people would push back and say, you know, you're trying to tell me my grief is bad or wrong. You're trying to tell me I shouldn't grieve. And, And there's nothing of that in my workshop or in that training. 
or in that process for saying goodbye to good people without saying goodbye to good memories. It's, it's much more about understanding what is happening in my mind-body energy system when I don't want the, what the flow of life is bringing me and how in that experience, as intense as those things are, how I add to them or minimize them, how I deny and suppress them, how I stay open to them and let them flow through me, is understanding the process and giving me options that I don't have if I buy into the culture that says, of course you're going to be depressed, of course you're going to be sad, of course you're going to have many, many months of grieving and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Of course anybody would feel that, etc. When I buy into that as a set of beliefs, I do not have options. I do not have flexibility. When I step into awareness of how this works, I open up myself to observing the flow of thoughts, the process of mind energy focused in one area or another, the way that creates an emotional experience, the way that creates a physiological tension or upset. When I observe that directly and accurately, it gives me all kinds of options that I don't have if I just adhere to a belief that someone has told me about or this is what should be happening. That's one of the one of the real pieces I like about this work for all of the different pieces that may go a little sideways here and there. I don't remember being told by anybody who's doing this ancient Aramaic forgiveness work, whether it's Michael Rice or Dale Allen Hoffman or any of the other teachers I've been exposed to who do similar work, I don't remember being hammered on with, you should do this and you need to do that. And What I've experienced is a lot of presentation of options. Here's an option. If you want to, try this and see what happens. Here's a way to look at this that's different than the way you're looking at it now. And if you choose to step into that way of looking at it, you might have different results. Feel free to try this other set of perspectives to look at this situation. This is an offering and an invitation. This is not a shoulds. This is not a you have to. This is not a belief system. This is about direct observation and discovery. And everyone who's exposed to this path is just being extended an invitation. And years ago I was listening to a, it might have been a book on tape or it might have just been a series of lectures on um, cassette tapes by um, Wayne Dyer. And he had a little poem 
that I've tried for years to find. And it has to do with should have, would have, could have, um, have to. It's this lovely little poem about how it's all worthless. And so um, because I don't have a time machine and I can't go back in time and redo an action or redo a thought or redo a, a belief from the past, I only have the present moment. And so what makes the most sense to me is to focus on things that I can change in this moment. In this moment, can I observe what I'm doing with my mind energy? In this moment, can I observe how that might be generating a certain pattern of physical energies within me that when I connect it with my thought pattern, I say, here's this emotion I'm feeling. If I review a pattern of activity that I've engaged with with someone else or some group of people and I say, I really don't like how that ended, can I isolate what my role was in that pattern of interaction so that I might be able to respond differently the next time? I can pick up the tool of responsibility and therefore have the ability to respond differently the next time I find myself facing a similar set of circumstances. So, that's where my thoughts are going today. 563-999-3581. If you call that number and press 1, we can have a conversation. As I've mentioned on this show recently, I have a number of people in my caseload who are facing serious illness, their parents with serious illness, facing death and loss, a lot of grief work, a lot of people identifying what they're doing in their choice of focusing of their thoughts that's creating either a numbing out solution for them or um, a loving response to the flow of life or really intense negative emotions and grief. And I think I mentioned not too long ago that we had, it was either three or four people in one of the groups, Tuesday or Thursday groups, who had all had a loss of either... Um, a baby or a parent or both or um, a good friend within the, within one year's time. And we found that here we were on this support group and four or five of us have been through these life events that are nothing that we would have wanted. Nothing that anybody could look at the way we've been raised in this culture and say, oh boy, this is fun. I'm looking forward to this. And so we were in this community where we could all tap in at different levels to what had been going on with us in response to these life events and apply the tools to see if we could get a more preferred response within ourselves.
That's a big part of why we do this work. We're trying to make these tools available, as Michael Rice would say, to every mind, heart, and being on the planet. And if there's a way we can assist you in using these tools, whether you're in the middle of facing a grief or loss that is rather intense, or you want to revisit one from years ago that you have a suspicion that you might have denied and suppressed and maybe um, truncated the process and there might be some trapped energy in you or some fear of facing the actualities of life that you would benefit from approaching differently. Let us know. 563-999-3581. Our second hour today is going to be a recording. Michael and Jeannie are probably busy with family issues related to what we were just talking about. And... That's going to be, a, I think it's the fifth hour of the Why book. Why Why again? Why is this happening to me again? So if nobody has a hand up, I'm going to go back to the questions from A Walk in the Physical by Christian Sundberg. One of the questions there is, Why are near-death experiences unique? Why isn't the content of a near-death experience always the same? Why why doesn't everybody who gets a glimpse into the life after the physical body drops, why don't they all see the same thing? The answer is, the reason near-death experiences are so different is because the thing that is actually fundamentally real is consciousness, spirit itself. The forms that consciousness experiences, the objects and environments, and even ideas, these are not fundamental. They change. In our own reality on Earth, we have an apparently shared objective reality. Parentheses, it says, technically, it's the experience of a shared reality rather than a fundamental place close the parentheses but other reality systems can have different rules and are more responsive to the nature of the individual they are generally much more responsive to belief thought and intent in the course of a near-death experience differences in individuals and their human experience become apparent in the environment of those that are more responsive to reality systems and the the content of form, thought, belief, etc. The higher realities speak to the earthly personality in the experienced language of that personality. This is the, the concept that, you know, when somebody who's been trained in a Catholic faith has a near-death experience, 
they're going to see the Pope and or Jesus and or the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. They're going to see images that go along with what their mind has been trained to believe in and the pictures they've seen in books and stories since they were little kids about who's supposed to be there to greet them. And when somebody who's an agnostic and has been raised as an agnostic and he or she has a near-death experience, they can see their grandmother and their grandfather and their great aunt and uncle that went before them welcoming them or talking about, you, you know, you have a choice. You can stay here in the spirit realm or you can go back to physical. And somebody who's a Buddhist might see the Buddha. And somebody who's a Hindu might see Vishnu on a lotus flower or Brahman or because that's what their mind and mind energy has been trained to expect. So the the actuality of life will find a way to communicate with that person that they can understand. It says, put another way, higher reality systems are thought responsive and they are belief responsive. So while earthly assumptions and beliefs still define reality for the individual, the apparently external environments of those realities will interact with the personality in a way that is the best for the physical translation for that individual. The note here says, note, it doesn't mean they're not real. Indeed, experiences of higher systems are commonly perceived as far more real than the experience of our physical world. Evan Alexander talks about that, the brain surgeon that had his own near-death experience because his brain shut down. He said that the experience that he had for however many hours and days that his brain was clinically dead was far more real than his walking around in life experience. And still, this essay goes on, this question and answer goes on and says, still, near-death experiences do share many characteristics. According to Dr. Jeffrey Long's book titled Evidence of the Afterlife, in which he studied the near-death experience of 613 experiencers, and I think it's over a 1,000 now, 75.4% of the near-death experiencers experienced a separation of consciousness from the physical body. 74.4% experienced heightened sense perception, and 76.2% experienced intense positive emotions or feelings, just to name a few of those characteristics that are common across almost every near-death experience. So again, it, there are a whole series of questions here about near-death experiences, and my my impression of them is this is what Dr. Michael Rice talks about as 
the trap of the non-being mind trying to figure it out. So here we are trying to use our conscious logical mind and whatever is in the very limited perception from our five senses, and we're trying to come up with things that make sense about experiences that go way beyond the senses, they go way beyond the capacity of the conscious logical mind to track it. And so if you're into that kind of thing, there's all kinds of questions here about near-death experiences and responses to them. I don't really see that much value in asking and debating those questions because you're talking about things that your conscious logical mind and your experience in the physical realm cannot even begin to comprehend. So, 563-999-3581. If you call that number and press 1, we can have a conversation. What is on your mind? Susan? Hi. So, this made me think about the kindness of God, that God would come to us in forms that are familiar to us to help us find God or make a connection. But I was struck by something fairly similar that happened happened in our family reunion the other day when I was talking to my nephew. And he said, he asked God a question. And God answered, where else would I be? I.e., where else would I be but with you? But he said, the voice that founded in his mind was his own voice, but purified. He recognized it as his own voice. And I had an experience many years ago where I heard God in the form of a woman singing, and her voice was my very own voice, but pure totally familiar, and I wondered if you thought that might be a similar example of God's kindness to us. Well, yeah, you can use the word kindness because that's, you know, that's attributing human physical characteristics <laughs> yeah. to it. Um, yeah. Which is fine. If that gives you a good feeling, do it. Use it that way. The way that it seems to make just a little bit more universal sense to me is that we have to make sense of it, right? It's it's still yeah. trying to register in us. Now, if we make the transition from physical into the non-physical and we don't come back, if we stay in the non-physical then we get an expansiveness, we get a, a, an experience that's more expansive and we aren't limited to what we can translate into words and phrases and then try to communicate to other human beings who are still in the body. 
But as long as we're still in the body and we're coming back, we have to have a way to integrate it and make sense of it, and we're still using the same brain with all the life experiences and the language. I mean, think about it. I, I remember a number of people we've worked with over the years who are absolutely freaked out at the thought that Jesus never spoke English. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Right? Or, 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 that, or that any right. of these other great philosophers who were raised in another time on another continent and another culture, that, that all we're getting is a, um, a translation. We're getting an interpretation. We're not getting the true experience of what, um, you know, any Rumi or any of these other great poets that, that experienced life from their culture and their language, they, they never spoke or wrote English. Mm. And, and even when we have people who are using our own language, we have this happen so often in the support groups, it isn't even funny. We're all speaking English. We think we're all saying things that everybody understands. We're all listening to the Michael Singer or Michael Rice or Dale Allen Hoffman or Guy Finley lecture, and we turn off the lecture, and we have three different people saying that he just said this. No, he didn't. He said that. No, he didn't say that. Anything like that. He said this. We're all using the same language, and we can't comprehend the same message so it mm. is coming into us as just vibrations and it's stimulating what's already inside of us so of course it's going to need to make sense by resonating something we've already had an experience with mm. yeah you know it's like the old line um to a cow, God looks like a cow. Yeah, right. I was doing some uh, clearing out of my office, and a couple of things came from it this past weekend. And one of them was an old photocopy of a of a comic, like a Far Side comic, and it's a picture of these obviously meant to be cavemen. And, you know, with a little bit of animal skins draped over them, and there's two of them standing off to one side, and there's one of them mm. prostrating himself in front of a pile of rocks, kind of a pyramidal shape, maybe you know, ten or fifteen rocks piled in a in a, in a pointed shape, and he's kneeling down, and his forehead is in the ground, and his hands are out like he's you know, praying to the pile of rocks, and the other two. Mm. And, and in the same picture, there's another pile of rocks off to the side. And these two cavemen are standing there, and the caption reads, Doesn't Grog look silly? He must not know that our pile of rocks is the real God. I remember seeing that. That's old. I remember it, that. It's That's old. Amazing. I'm telling you, I was, I was clearing out stuff from my office that goes back to 2004, 2006. Mm. And there was a note about how in 2010, you know, 13, 14 years ago, we had our first meeting of the support group in our new location connected to the Unity Church. 
Mm. And 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 that was about five or six years into doing it, because now we're in our we finished our nineteenth year now of that Tuesday group, but all that stuff was stirring up, and it and and it's helped me remember all kinds of situations where we thought we were all watching the same video or hearing the same thing or reading the same book, and we all came away with very different impressions about what was being said and what it meant. Yeah. So it makes very good sense that your grandson would hear his own voice and that you would hear your own voice singing because it's got to come into you in a way that you can make sense of, that you can resonate Hmm. Just think about it. How many times you have somebody where you really like an artist, you like his or her voice, and there's somebody else who doesn't like them at all? They either don't like that style of music or they think their voice is too raspy or too syrupy sweet Mm -hmm. and I'd rather have Rod Stewart singing this or, you know... It's just so different for all of us. Our experience of life is so different. Remember early on when you would call in, you would say, you were convinced that I was telling people as soon as they started crying that I was telling them to stop crying. Mm Mm-hmm. And it took several repetitions, according to my memory, for us to go over that before you started to soften and and include the possibility that I was inviting them to keep the energy moving and keep the emotions uh, you know, up for them and feel them and keep the breath moving. Yeah. Not your breath moving so you stop crying but keep your breath moving so you don't shut down the energy system that will help you process, get in touch with, feel more fully, and begin to understand what meaning these emotions might have for you. Whereas if I'm choking back the tears and I'm holding my breath and I'm trying to think of what to say because I think I'm on the Internet show and people need to hear something from me rather than just being with the energy, then I don't sit with it. I don't have a full experience of it. And I don't keep my energy system wide open so that it can process through those energies and emotions. Yeah, I remember that. I think that's when you you and um, Michael were running the show together. It was a one-hour-a-day thing, right? Because I remember yeah, getting really it. upset about something, and Michael said, breathe, breathe. And I, I felt as if somebody had thrown cold water on me, that crying was really not a good thing to do. <clears throat> I had totally misunderstood that. Yep, there was there was a solid eight years of just one hour a day. So the the shows were either with us on together or either one of us on. Mm. When did when did you start your own show? What year? Nineteen. 
It was in, uh, I think it was in March of 19. And mm. then in in May of 19, um, there was this pivotal show that just you were involved in and there was some disruption. And so it's been since then that I've had the, the second hour, which was independent of this, Hmm. Added another hour is the way to say it. Yeah, I don't remember the disruption. I remember one difficult show, and maybe that was the same one. I've forgotten, you know, how how all that came about. It's been a very good development, though, because your approach is so different and brings in teachers from other traditions but they were all consistent. And I imagine Michael likes that a lot because it reinforces what he's doing and been doing with his tools. But it's been a solid four years now where there's... pushing four and a half now since it started in, I believe it was Mm. March of 2019. I've been trying to remember where I first, how I first found the radio show and when that first call, I was hooked right away. I just thought, boy, I really need this. And it was so um, inviting. I didn't feel even afraid to press one. I remember just thinking this is the best thing. I can't remember. I think it's been about, for me, I've been on for about eight years. That's a guess, maybe six. I was going to say six. Oh, yeah, okay. But, you know, if we go back in the archives, we'll find the um, some of the calls where you admitted that you, you know it sounds silly, but you believe that your ang- your worry keeps your son's plane in the air when he's flying. Oh yeah. And then and then you called in to do a powerful worksheet on I think you had one before the upset about uh the the world burning up. Mm, but you've had I a couple that, that, that have been turned into highlight shows at least on my uh MindShiftersAcademy.org website. Mm. So we 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 know it's it's at least more than four years. I was going to say it's five or yeah. six now. Yeah, I remember you'd come on the show while you were sharing it with Michael, and Michael would say how are you, sir, or something like that, and you'd say, I'm well, in this very modulated way. And I thought, whoa, that's a great thing to be able to say. <laughs> Funny what we remember. Yeah, it's been it's been a very active community for, you know, a total of over 12 years. 
Yeah. And it was a very active community before that, without the Internet show. You know, there were 20, 2006, I found uh, notes about a visit to Heartland from 2006. Oh, wow. And I'm not, I'm not sure that was my first or it might have been my second. And I've been down there four or five times over the years. Mm-hmm. Dr. Tim, I've got to go. Tim Bingham is in trouble with his computer. So All right, no worries. Sign off. Thank you for the okay. call. Thanks. Blessings. All right, thanks. Yeah, thanks. Area code 541, we've got about six minutes left. Uh, this Welcome. is Celinda. Um, that that comic that you were talking about was BC, because I remember it explicitly because it caught my attention in a very profound way also. So I just thought I'd let you know. BC, not Farside, huh? Not far side. I'm pretty sure it was BC because I've got. Uh, you're probably right. Yeah, you're probably right. It's it was one of my favorites, and um, and I. Yep. It, it, if people would ask me about religion, I would hold up that comic. <laughs> I bought a pair of earrings at the secondhand store, and they were really kind of hippie kind of earrings, you know, like. Um, um, shaped wires in a form and on the bottom was this little tiny heart uh, flower actually a little tiny flower ceramic flower and it says believe and when I saw that um, I, I snapped them up because I thought it was cute and uh, when I decided to uh, finish my business there the lady who was volunteering said I said, yeah, I can. Um, I, I bought these little things with believe, and I was just thinking about saying something like, uh, well, whatever you believe. And she said, yeah, that's really cool. She says, just whatever you believe. <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool. That's very Aramaic in relation to we're going to translate things in our own way and in relation to your comment with Susan today. That's that old adage of we all say the same words and speak a different language, and I'm learning that more and more. And um, and I do have some forgiveness work that I touched on, um, I think, last night in a support group that um, brought up a really deep issue for me, so I shall carry on with that, and when I come to some clarity, I'll share it. All right. I'll look forward to that as you see fit. Yes, yes sir. So I'll be, and Anything uh, else to share today? No. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, I will be at the support group uh, tomorrow night, so hopefully I can make it there. <laughs> really All right. crazy right now. Thank you. Summertime in well, the country. All right. Well, blessings. Thanks for being on the show. And I will uh, remind us all that we come from love. We're made of this stuff we call love. We actually are love and everything else is false. This is your second hour.
And Richard, the bad news is that rather than run away from pain, we need to face it. Escape is not part of the process. Reaching new levels of empowerment as you have also gives you the strength to delve into new depths of your healing, which is not always Dr. Feelgood. As you recognize the next level of your work, it's important that you remember the cosmic grace, willingness. Mm -hmm. Moving into the release mode as you have, old energies from the past are felt as though they are present moment experiences, which they're not. Things seem the darkest because you're accessing new depths hidden perhaps for years, even, even in some cases for generations. This part of your work is called the healing crisis. Healing crises are usually experienced on three levels. When an energy goes into the human system, it creates symptoms. When the symptoms of a degenerative energy are suppressed, as with the use of drugs, they do not leave the system but are driven deep into tissue. This happens whether the suppressed energy is physical, mental, or emotional. Symptomatically, each release of old disease energies is experienced and felt in the same way, with the same intensity as when they entered the system as disease. Willingness is kind of like the cosmic grease that accelerates and eases the process of release. On a physical level, as the energy releases, it looks like old physical symptoms and low energy. On the mental level, release looks like any kind of negative thought and on the emotional level, it feels like any old feeling that has ever been suppressed. Release can also put in its appearance as depression. These are all desirable states of healing, Richard, believe it or not. All right. <laughs> Michael, in the past, I would have accused you of being crazy. But I'm really starting to hear with different ears. It's a strange sensation finding myself saying I'm willing to purposely experience pain. I have one problem, though. If I'm going to experience all these symptoms, how will I know if I'm in one of these healing crises or if I'm sick? Ultimately, you must be in touch with what's going on in your system and make the determination for yourself as to the nature of your symptoms. There are three signals that can assist in determining whether or not symptoms are healing in process. What, what are they? Well, first, you reach a new level of vitality. Notice you did that a little while ago. Second, you're doing your inner work and more and more of the right things in your life. Third, there's an increase in elimination. Any or all of the eliminative channels, the skin, the lungs, the bowel, the bladder, or mucous membranes, increase their output. If your answer to these signals is yes, when you're symptomatic, you are likely in a healing crisis. It's time to use the tools to rest. And remember the cosmic grace, you've got to be willing. For confirmation, an experience has been a healing crisis. Often afterward, you will notice an addiction such as the craving for caffeine, sugar, junk food, alcohol, or, or even hostility disappears. Wow. crisis, you'll have the opportunity to question different realities fed to you by your mind. It is a chance to review and make decisions based on principles rather than having to accept and be directed by whatever realities happen to be triggered in you. The reason for doing this, even though it appears you are experiencing the present moment through your mind, is that all experience from the human mind is from the past. The present moment cannot be experienced through the mind. The mind 
is a has-been. I can't even relate to that thought, Michael. How else can I experience life but through my mind? Obviously, what comes from the mind is from the present. Richard appeared to be in resistance to a new idea again. Uh, Richard, recall our analogy of the two-dimensional creature? Mm -hmm. She assured us that a basketball was a series of flat planes experienced over time, right? Yeah. How did we finally get her to see the basketball as it is? She had to question everything in her past, all of her experiences. It was not until she did that the possibility of a new experience opened for her. Mm -hmm. It's amazing how many people want to change but refuse to think or act differently. Are you willing to do something that virtually every authority tries to prevent? Are you willing to question everything? I explained to Richard an experiment that I do in my workshops. I ask everyone in the audience to step back from their minds and observe what happens inside. Then I ask them each to put their right hand in their right ear and invite everyone to look around and notice that every person in the room is doing pretty much the same thing. Why did they all do the same action and put their right hand on their right ear, Richard? They followed your directions. I have another theory. In each mind, there are brain cells storing information from the past. Each person was trained in what the words right, hand, and ear meant. When I spoke, I caused those brain cells to fire, and each was shown the reality contained in their brain cell structure and followed the directions given to them by that reality. They didn't follow my directions. Well, of course they followed your directions. The instructions, put your right hand on your ear, came from my voice, true. The reality each mind had for these words came from the past of the individual involved in the exercise, however. The only reason each person did the same thing is that they were all taught the same realities about right hand and ear. They didn't follow my directions, but the directions that came from their minds, from the past. Interesting theory, Michael, but how do we verify it? Well, I thought you might ask that, Richard. Imagine we have somebody in the audience whose mother trained him differently. Imagine his mother taught him that the nose is an ear. Where did he put his hand when I said put your right hand in your right ear? He put his hand on his nose, of course. Well, put that in context of our search to verify that everything from the mind is from the past. I gave one set of instructions but two different results were produced. One person was out of step with everyone else when he put his hand on his nose, which he'd been taught was an ear. Was anyone following my instructions? Hmm. I offer that each person followed the guidance of the reality that my instruction triggered in them. And that guidance came from the past in each mind, not from my words. Imagine that I had spoken my instructions in Chinese. Would anyone have moved a hand? Only those who spoke Chinese, right? Otherwise, nothing from the past was triggered in anyone's mind by the words I spoke. Richard, um, how about putting your right hand on your gizzard? Uh, I can't do that. Uh, I don't have one. Notice, though you have no gizzard, you still look through your past, your has-been, your mind, to check and see if there was a reality there that could give meaning to my words. No information in brain cells, no past from which to gather a meaning. With no past, there was no reality to be resonated by my words. Whether your mind gives its meaning in an instant, as when I said, put your right hand in your right ear, or, or whether there's a time delay in looking for your gizzard, every meaning in the mind is from the past. 
Each meaning is an individual reality triggered by my words and projected from the inside of each mind. The mind's meanings are all from the past. The mind, known as the great deceiver, subtly deceives us into thinking its information is truth and what is happening now in the present. All thought is from the past. Mm. If all the information in our brain cell structure has come from the external world, our reality structures have been totally molded by the world. When we unconsciously lend our creative power to our past, we can become lost in recreating it, the essence of the why is this happening to me again experience. When we awaken from the sleep induced by existing in the shadow of a dead past and a dead mind, we find that love, aliveness, joy, and delight are a birthright, and anything less than that's a lie. If you doubt that, just look into the eyes of a child. The only reason we live in anything less than our birthright is that we're living out of the content of the has-been, the mind. The limitations of that storage device need not be the promise of the future. Should we get rid of the mind, Michael? Is it useless? Well, no. The mind, in its proper place, is a great servant. It's designed to be a storage device, and much like a computer, it's useful for its task. The problem begins when we allow the mind to make our decisions for us, when we allow it to run our lives. You use your computer to store and recall information when you need it, but what would you say to the person who makes no choices for themselves, the person whose computer makes all of their decisions? I might say something like, wake up, there's another world out there, another whole level of aliveness. Your computer mind can't think. It can only spit out what has been put into it. Let go of it as your decision-making device. Make your own choices and take charge of your life. Agreed. Recall, in the Aramaic creation story, Adam goes into a deep sleep. Have you ever noticed that nowhere do they mention him waking up? <laughs> the root of the word Adam means red clay. I propose they were telling us that we were asleep in the realities that come from the body's memory bank and therefore stuck in the mind of the past, asleep, so to speak. We are more than a body or a mind. We are designed to live in a larger context, the world of actuality. We are not designed to be trapped by the tiny framework of the atom mind that only knows how to repeat its past again and again. There's a quote by William Blake that I think says it very well. He says, we are led to believe a lie when we see with and not through the eye. There you go again, Michael, making perfect sense. I want to hear more. I can't seem to get enough. It, it feels like every concept, every word is feeding my soul. That's exactly the idea of true spiritual teachings, Richard. They were spirit rituals, rituals or tools for realizing our true nature, which is not physical, but in the level of energy beyond physical, a level of energy called spiritual. These tools were created to assist us in waking up from the has-been and putting an end to being controlled by the past realities in our minds. They are the keys to awakening and stepping into true aliveness. Once a person realizes there is another way to live life and there are real tools available for doing spiritual work, it often seems as though nothing else matters. Finding this other way of living in Aramaic was called finding the pearl of great price. It's exciting to catch the vision of a new self, alive and vibrating with the delight of existence coming into expression. 
and the old painful life of the mind passing away. In its roots, this spiritual process was known as awakening or, or being reborn. It's a very real experience. You know, Michael, when someone asks, have you been reborn, I usually feel like I'm about to be uh, pounced on if I don't answer the way they expect. I feel like I'll be cut off because I'm not part of the in-crowd. I think you'll find that the person who uses force and becomes obnoxious when asking a question about being reborn is not quite as reborn as they like to think, but is coming from a space of inferiority. Love does not abuse. It gently demonstrates what it has found and holds a space for others to find the gift, though some people might get you know, a little overly enthusiastic in their desire to help others find what they've experienced. I see there's another level of meaning to being reborn. I'm ready to wake up. I want to get this process over with yesterday. Let's do it. Richard was in another new level of enthusiasm. Slow down just a little, Richard. If you get ahead of yourself, it will wreak havoc in your life. In Aramaic, people were warned not to storm the gates, not to go too quickly. Doing your inner work is a process that takes time, and remaining in balance throughout that process makes life a whole lot easier. Each of the tools we offer is designed to assist in keeping that balance. Some people get so excited about the intellectual aspect of this work, they forget to use the tools. Using them is of paramount importance for maintaining balance. Some people, on first hearing, have an uncanny understanding of this work and use the tools almost automatically. For them, it's like recalling something they've always known and wanted. Living in an awakened state is such a radically different way to view life that while others find this work rings true for them, it takes more time to make sense of the concepts involved. These people require the discipline to use the tools. Still others go through a period of total confusion when they begin this study. What category do you suppose I'm in, Michael? Well, it really doesn't matter, Richard. The key lies in doing your work. Many people alternate between clarity and confusion each time new levels of understanding and empowerment are reached. Each time you use the tools, new insights will open. Information that was not available the time before will pop into your head. Uh, wait a second. Now, that just doesn't make any sense. If the information is there, it's there. It makes sense that it's available no matter when you read it. Well, that would seem to be true, but recall our discussion of actuality versus reality. Reality is the meaning that shows up in your brain out of the has-been as a result of an actuality you've experienced. What shows up in your brain comes from what has been resonated and reinforced, what's been built into brain cells, not from what you read or marks on a piece of paper. If information is not in the has-been, it cannot be served up to you as a reality. Now explain to me again what built into brain cells means. Information has to be in your structure before your brain can turn it into a reality. Though information may be on a piece of paper, it is not available through your brain structure as reality until it is in your brain cell structure. What we say we see when we see is the image output from the mind, not what's in the world. Every image seen through the mind is internal to that mind. The physicists tell us that what goes on in the world of actuality is a whirring mass of energy moving in patterned ways. The eye cannot see. It's a frequency device, an antenna tuned to a certain frequency we call visible light. It brings those frequencies into the brain. The mind, a function of brain cells firing, filters everything through its own content. 
Anything inconsistent with that content will be changed to conform to the internal belief system of the evidential device, the mind. I notice I'm not breathing. And I'm surprising myself at how often I don't. What surprises me most is that for as frequently as I hold my breath, I usually don't even know that I'm doing it. For something as basic as breathing, I would think I would be more aware of when I'm not. When I do breathe, Michael, all this information feels like overload. It feels like I can't grasp it. I feel stupid. Hey, that's great. Nice catch. What I hear is that you are noticing for yourself when unconsciousness surfaces, which usually means the has-been is having one of its conflicting realities challenged. Holding your breath tends to lock your awareness into the smallness of the mind of the past. Breathing opens the larger context of actuality and is one of the keys to dumping the has-been's contents when they are inaccurate and no longer useful. Still point breathing is a tool we teach in our intensives to open up and dump the limiting components of the has-been and do it high speed. Let's look into that stupid thought that just surfaced. Who taught you you were stupid? When a reality like this surfaces, if you stay conscious and keep breathing, it's your opportunity to forgive, to remove that reality from the has-been. My dad always called me stupid. Are you saying that I took on the reality, being stupid, and now, as it surfaces, I have a chance to forgive, get rid of that reality in my mind, or, or be run by it, which you're calling unconsciousness. As I put this together with the evidential mind stuff you explained earlier, it occurs to me that if I accept being stupid as my reality, my mind can only give me evidence, and, and that, that's what I'll get. I'll be stupid. Is that why being stupid has plagued me all my life? That's exactly the way it works, Richard. I'm changing that thought. I'm letting go of that idea. Now, I've been blocked by the reality of being stupid long enough. It has interfered with everything. It's been terrifying, almost like a dragon's been chasing me. Honest, that's what it feels like. Is this what you mean by casting out demons? That's what it seems like to me. I bet that this kind of thing, that it's what they were referring to in the scriptures when they spoke of demons. It was getting free of the things that haunt us from the has-been. They were referring to this inner healing process. Is that right? That's it. Exactly. Our disintegrative inner thought complexes are our own demons, Richard. I'm seeing that, Michael. A whole complex of being stupid thoughts and feelings just surfaced in me. It felt overwhelming and confusing when it happened. But somehow, it was different from when it has happened in the past. When it ever occurred before, I would get lost in the feelings and buy into being powerless. Come to think of it, this is when I would get angry and I'd do the bully routine that we spoke of earlier. Just now... I stayed conscious, and I processed, I think that's what you'd call it, through those thoughts and, and feelings without getting lost in my stupid pattern or my anger. <sighs> nice work. Yes, this is a process, and I think you just worked through one of your demons, or what are sometimes called drag-ons. 
in some circles, cling-ons. <laughs> Richard, you're grasping this information quickly, and I'm glad you noticed it doesn't have to be heavy. It, it can be fun. It's a process of building brain cells. It takes time to understand this information. As you do this work and review these ideas, you will grasp new levels of meaning. Your understanding and insights will deepen each time. Your natural brilliance, the brilliance we were all created with, will shine through. Be patient with your learning process. Let's look again at the way the mind works. All output must conform to whatever realities have been built into brain cells. Each reality the mind generates must match the pattern of what is in the has-been, in the mind's belief system. The mind formulates its output according to the content of brain cells. The secrets are hidden by the mind, not in the mind. It is the mind that sees, and it only sees the images it generates. It only generates images for which it has brain cells in meaning. What is possible when we get past the insane, the loveless meanings we've been trained into? What's there, Michael? Richard, who knows? But from the records of the spiritual giants of the past, things are going to be very different. The ancient teachings pointing out that the mind of man, the has-been, has not yet conceived what lies in store. Perhaps there is a very real Garden of Eden available, but we don't let it enter. Have you ever watched how a child keeps coming back with love? Perhaps we did not get kicked out of the garden, but we gave up our natural created condition, love, by accepting the world of our cultural training and acting as though the insanities contained in the has-been were true. Perhaps we will see that we, the world, and everyone in it deserve to be perceived through the condition of love just because we each exist. Perhaps when we follow this first law, we will see the evidence that shows us that we will benefit in ways not yet conceived. Love does not come from outside of us. It is our created condition. Love is a noun. It's not a verb. It cannot be taken away from us. We bury it with our unresolved pain. A fresh perspective is necessary. The mind must be cleansed of its insanity, of everything less than love. A mind that could conceive of actuality free of a past that colors what the Creator created is a mind capable of what was called an immaculate conception. I hear that you're saying that there are deeper meanings to all of these old teachings, and I'm beginning to grasp that they apply to my life. I'm excited by it and a, and a little blown away. This idea of realities being available only if they were built into brain cells was addressed in Aramaic when the scriptures referred to the eyes to see and the ears to hear, or, or having eyes see ye not, having ears hear ye not. Obviously, these people had eyes and ears. However, if they did not have the information in brain cells, Though they saw or heard the same words or actions as others, the deeper meanings of the teachings could not show up in their minds. They could not hear or see the true intended meanings. I'm not sure I understand. Are you familiar with computers? Mm -hmm. um, well, let's look into a computer analogy that might help us make sense of these ideas. first sat down at a computer, yeah. you had an idea what could be done, but because you'd not built the brain cells for operating it, you had no realities in your mind to guide you. That was for sure. Therefore, you could not get it to perform. 
Once you study computers or an expert helped you build the brain cells, you could run it successfully. Prior to being able to operate the computer, the only difference between you and the expert was the content of her brain cell structure compared to yours. She had realities about computers that you had not built yet. Once you developed the eyes to see, you were able to tap the creative capacity of the computer because you had the brain cells to put it to work. Notice when the computer wouldn't perform for you, it did not mean there was something wrong with the computer or with you. All the possibilities were there. If you crashed the computer, it was not interested in being vindictive or punishing you. It simply didn't work the way you wanted it to work. It's a perfect model of what happens in life. So getting a computer to work takes learning. Is that what you're calling building brain cells? Yes. And in life, we live out the realities for which we have brain cells. Life does not punish. It only gives us back what we ask for. If the realities we hold in brain cells call for what looks like punishment, life will be limited to doing just that again and again until we change. Just like the computer, when you learn how life works, its creative capacity will open up to you. Developing a deeper comprehension of how we learn and refining our understanding of the difference between reality and actuality will make this work easier to grasp. In the Aramaic culture, the distinction between actuality and reality was well understood. Through the brain, we can only see and grasp a reality that is in our brain cell structure, though we may think we see and understand what's happening in the outside world. Hmm. There is much more to life than what is seen through our limited senses. And it takes patience to build the brain cells for deeper awareness. It takes time to integrate the ideas presented in this work and for significant change to take place. Those without the brain cells will often wonder why others get excited when using these tools. These ideas will seem hollow and meaningless to them. On the other hand, I've seen people become impatient with this work because they want all the information now instead of taking time to go through the learning process. Uh -huh. I experienced some frustration myself because I would like to teach the whole process in one exhale. <laughs> it would be wonderful if people could have all the understanding and tools in usable form all at once, but learning them is a process. One of the blocks that tends to slow the process is the conflicting realities people have in their minds about words. The way words are used plays an important part in building brain cells. A word may be understood in various ways. It may be hooked into a variety of realities individual to each mind. There are agreed upon meanings that seem to be inherent in words, but the only meaning a word has is the reality it brings up in an individual's brain cell structure. Just because people agree upon a definition does not mean the word itself holds this or that meaning. Remember in the ancient teachings, they taught that we all spoke one language, Yes. Then we each went away from the, the Tower of Babel experience speaking a different language. Mm -hmm. Well, we all speak from our own different conceptual realities. I can see, Michael, that just keeping clear on the concepts of reality and actuality will take time for me. But I'm up for the challenge. I can see it is going to involve unlearning old habits of thinking and ingrained behaviors. It's time for me to deal with the things that haven't worked in my life. I just need to get past the feelings that overwhelm me when I think about how much work I have to do. I don't uh, agree with everything you said, and some of it doesn't click for me yet. 
but I've looked at many other approaches, and this one makes more sense than anything else I've investigated. Putting these tools to work in your life will fill in many blanks and answer most of your questions. Let's look at the forgiveness process as it's presented in the Reality Management Worksheet. Richard assured me that he was willing to do whatever it would take, and for the first time since he arrived, acknowledged that he knew this is what he needed. Richard looked calm. Richard, I feel the reality management sheet is one of the best tools we've developed for cleaning out conflicting realities. It shows how to forgive step by step. Once you learn it, if you use it regularly, I guarantee life will never be the same. Well, that sounds like a promise I can't refuse. I'm willing. Tell me more. The Aramaic word shebag has been translated into the English word forgive, but it actually has a much deeper and richer meaning than our Western concept of forgiveness. The word itself translates as to cancel, to let loose, or to untie. As an Aramaic concept, the word shebag means a tool for changing a reality in your mind. In our culture, we say forgive your brother as though it's your brother that needs forgiven for your upset. An Aramaic mind that understood the original teachings on forgiveness would never say such a thing. Well, what would they say? The statement would be forgive as to your brother. Wait a minute. You're losing me. Well, give me a moment to tie it all together and see if what I'm saying fits. Does it make sense to you to define reality as the output of the mind? Mm. Yeah. Okay. Can you accept that we are each responsible for our own realities? Okay. I'm with you so far. If I'm functioning responsibly and you bring a reality, let's say fear to the surface in me, is there anything I should be forgiving you for? Well, if I look at at it your way, no, because I've just triggered your fear, not caused it. I guess you could say, I've given you an opportunity to get rid of that fear. Hey, mm. you know, I'm actually giving you an opportunity to get rid of something that was hurting you, even though you weren't aware of what was causing your pain or the dis-ease in you. Exactly. The difference is that when I use the misunderstood form of forgiveness to forgive you, I must first blame or project onto you. In the Aramaic concept, each person takes responsibility for the content and output of his or her mind. When you engage in true forgiveness, you cancel what you want from your own mind. Strange as it may sound, this allows your projections to be undone and healing to occur. At first, this is usually a difficult concept to grasp when applied to practical situations, because in our programmed experience of the world, it seems like it is other people who make us feel what we feel. Let's discuss the theory behind why this process works a little bit later. Re remember we spoke of the projection externalization dynamic and blaming another for the output of your mind? Mm -hmm. Doesn't it seem just a little ridiculous for me to blame you for a reality in my mind? Well, it does sound strange when you put it that way. I'm still not convinced, though. It certainly doesn't feel like I'm projecting when I'm upset with someone. That's because of the way our minds work, Richard. We have an amazing capacity to make it appear that our internal realities are outside of us. Knowing this, the mind's distortions can be bypassed. As you realized earlier, all healing is an inside job. 
From the Aramaic point of view, your triggering me gives me the needed opportunity to see something inside of myself that needs to be forgiven. I can then forgive as to the reality you bring up in me, but in no way do I need to forgive you. Hmm. Let's look at the Aramaic form of forgiveness as it applies to the scene we discussed earlier when we talked about blockage of truth. Remember in that illustration I used earlier, and, and as you look at it, look at the way the language of the two people involved bounces off of each other. You know, just, just, let's just review that for a moment. He starts out and says, just leave me alone. And what does she say? Why can't you just do it the way I tell you to do it? He says, you make me so angry. She says, I'm sorry. It's all your fault. She starts to lament, I can't do anything right. Oh, it's okay. I'll let you off the hook. I'll forgive you. I forgive you for all the pain you've caused me too. Under her breath, she says, oh, good. Maybe things will work out this time. And then even on a deeper level, fat chance. I'll never be loved. I could just kill him. What's he thinking in his mind in the deeper levels? She'll destroy me if I don't get out. You're so messed up. I'm out of here, he says. And, of course, along with that comes, I want another drink. And then what's she, well, what's, why, why are you leaving? What's wrong with me? And uh, underneath it all, I want to eat. One of these days I'll speak up. So you look at that process of external forgiveness, and it's not forgiveness at all. Then as you look at the illustration of responsibility forgiveness that comes in those later diagrams we drew, and, and listen to the difference as we talk about Aramaic forgiveness what does he say? He says, ah, you know how to bring up my fear. Part of me wants to blame you. Will you support me in working through my blame, my fear, and my pain? I love you. I cancel my need for you to be a safe space for me. Hmm. And underneath, what's he thinking to himself? Ah, it's safe to feel. I can love and give up the need to protect myself. And what does she say? Wow, a man who, who tells the truth and can feel. My anger feels like it's melting now that I don't need to protect myself from abuse. I didn't think this was possible. And underneath she's thinking, this looks like human behavior. I want my kids to grow up with this kind of strength. I want to feel. Yeah, that's the key. Now as you take note of the language that each person uses in that responsibility process, and it comes from our workshop entitled Communication, Did You Hear What I Think I Said? Observe that the words they use reflect that each individual understands their responsibility for their individual realities. In the earlier diagram we did, all of the language was what we call projection language, which is based on the belief that someone else causes our realities and our pain. In that example, false forgiveness was used. Remember, he forgave her? Mm -hmm. False forgiveness reinforces the reality in his mind that she is to blame and leaves his internally produced pain intact. So shouldn't he forgive her? Once you understand true forgiveness as taught in the Aramaic, you will never forgive another ever again. You can't forgive anyone else. True forgiveness has to do with changing the reality triggered in your mind by another, not letting them off the hook for doing it. It is this dynamic and this dynamic alone that frees the mind of its hostility and pain and allows us to follow the first law of human existence the maintenance of the condition of love. To disobey that law is to be insane.
When someone tells me he or she has already done their forgiveness work, uh, you know, I've forgiven my father, my mother, my sister, my brother, my spouse, or friend, mm -hmm. I know they've done no forgiveness. They perhaps have done lots of pardoning, but forgiveness, because it is a totally internal dynamic, remains undone. When true forgiveness does not take place, People are easily disturbed and as a result make poor decisions because they're being prompted by a hostile or fearful mind. I've made some good decisions when I was angry, Michael. I don't know how that fits with what you're saying. Richard, each time you get angry, do you tend to make similar decisions even if the resulting behavior does not produce what you want? Yes. Doing the same thing repeatedly and expecting a different result is a good definition of insanity. If you make the same decision repeatedly, even if it's a good one, choice has not entered the picture. Decisions are the automatic product of resonance and do not lead to new behavior. They come from the has-been. Have you ever been enraged with someone and spontaneously rushed to embrace and tell them how much you love them? I don't think so. <laughs> not likely. That would require unusual circumstances or disciplined choice for most people. Decisions usually do not leave room for new choices or intelligent action and produce what I call an insane mind. Mm -hmm. Recall earlier that I asked when you were most intelligent? You said the only time you'd made decisions and done things that you regretted was when you were in a state other than love? Yeah. Our behavior is only insane when the mind is in a condition of hostility, fear, or a reaction to one of those emotions. True forgiveness removes from the human system the realities that defile human intelligence, health, prosperity, and relationships. It is the key to aliveness. How do we do this worksheet process? I don't have a clue what subjects to do it on. Can you give me any suggestions? Well, let's, let's explore the waitress picking up your cup of coffee in the restaurant. I think some of the things revealed in that conversation will be useful to discover how your mind produces its why is this happening to me again experiences. It should be fertile ground for finding material for several productive worksheets. I'm ready to look at everything in my life. Let's look at what your description of the events that day in the restaurant alluded to and see if any of the issues I think might be there are accurate. For instance, when you were small, were there brothers or sisters that your parents favored over you, um, perhaps to the point where they gave your toys to them? Uh, did you ignore and uh, fight a lot with them? Things are always being taken away from me. I never had anything to myself. But how did you know that? I don't see how you could have figured it out. Well, I didn't know it, but I suspected it when you told me in rough detail about the waitress picking up your coffee. But I didn't tell you about my childhood then. Well, I explained to Richard that he didn't, but his story did. Almost everyone experiences their own internal reality in place of what is happening in the world. This means there is a pattern or a theme for every reality flowing from brain cells. The words coming from a mind reflect the general patterns contained in the mind of the speaker. Words of delight and inspiration reflect the way life is designed to be. Angry words reflect an angry history. Sad words, a sad past. And fearful or fearsome words tell the story of a mind brought up in what was perceived as an unsafe world. Listening to people speak about any reality in their mind gives you a great deal of information about what has happened in their past, Richard. I see. We reflected on the idea that the perceptual output of a mind tells you more about the content of that mind than about the object it perceives. 
The output of a mind is always based on the content of that mind and may or may not accurately reflect the external world, the world of actuality. We reviewed the actualities from that day in the restaurant and the realities Richard's mind fed to him. We distinguished between the two. He experienced the actuality of a waitress picking up a cup of coffee. His mind fed him the reality from his past that something was being taken away. We discussed the fact that his someone's taking something from me reality surfaced because it was in him to be triggered, not because the waitress took his coffee. His thought that people take things away from him was a filter through which he viewed life. And this was his opportunity to use true forgiveness to change that reality in his mind. I didn't know my words made me so transparent. And I'm getting a sense of how you figured me out. How did you know that I used to ignore my sister and fight a lot? Recall you said you attacked the waitress without her having a chance to explain? You would likely attack that quickly only if you had built a reality that says something like, attack first, don't listen, if you listen you'll lose. It's a common reality in families where parents play favorites. That's painfully close to my relationship with my sister. Why don't you tell me all about me? Well, you'll notice, Richard, that I'm checking out what I'm hearing from you. That's an important step in this process. When I hear your words, I can only hear them for what they trigger in me. My meaning for your words might be totally off base. The key is what your words trigger in you, not what they mean to me. I always work to keep my insights and feedback in the form of questions so I stay on track. I'm here to support your looking into your issues, not mine. I'm not here to tell you anything. Words are a topic, of course, that we could just spend hours on, and in our Laws of Living Intensive, we do exactly that. A good practice is to observe the words you speak. When you see yourself using words that are not in support of what you truly want to create in your life, use the tools to change your reality structure, and your speech will change automatically. Uh, do you have any thoughts, Richard, about a topic for your worksheet? Where do I start? Well, the best place to start is to be clear on what you're doing and why. The people who really use these worksheets tell me that they become the best friend they ever had. Note, the emphasis is on using the tool. What the process does is give you an opportunity to confront directly your pain and the parts of your mind and life that don't work. With them, you will experience how you sabotage yourself and give away your power. The reality management process is a way to reclaim all of your hidden power. I feel a little resistance to the pain part, Michael. <laughs> yeah, well, you're not alone. Nobody wants to feel their pain until they understand. Understand what? Well, pain takes its toll even when it's not consciously felt. How so? Well, recall our earlier discussion about pain. Pain is the reflection of stored destructive energies. When people deny and restrict access to pain, the only thing they've accomplished is to keep it out of direct sight. Hidden or anesthetized pain is not removed from experience through denial or drugs. It is felt as the aches and pains of so-called aging, the twinge of emotional upsets that float in and out of our experience, the irrational outbreaks that destroy relationships, the accidents that occur, the headaches, the body aches, degenerative diseases, and the thousand irritations that subtract from the possible quality of life. 
There's an old saying, that the brave die once, the coward a thousand times. When you are fortified with actual tools to face and heal whatever's hidden, trauma and pain are dismantled and removed from your life. As you do this work, you will find your enjoyment in life, your sense of well-being, your aliveness increase in proportion to the amount of forgiveness you do. In the past, if life was lived without tools, most found that facing an old trauma meant reinforcing it and being powerless to change. The true forgiveness process changes all of that. Shift happens. The <laughs> issues in life can be faced and healed. Okay, Michael. I see the, the why of doing the reality management process. I'm not sure I understand the what. Well, the what is simple. If someone triggers anger, fear, rage, hate, vengeance, gossip, or any other disintegrative reality in you, it's your opportunity to heal yourself. Not by letting them off the hook, but by changing the pain-producing reality in your own mind. Whatever your experience of life is, every reality in your mind is changeable. You cannot directly change what happens in the outer world, People become frustrated and uptight when they continuously try to control life. The way to change the outer world is through indirect influence. By changing the realities in your mind, you shift your whole energy field and the patterns, realities, and resultant behaviors that cause the responses people present to you in your life. As the pattern of your life shifts, the ripple effect changes everything you attract. If abundance is your issue, pennies turn into dollars. The traditional translations of the scriptures speak of the fall of man. Fall? The Aramaic scriptures don't refer to a fall, hmm. but say that we forgot how to live in abundance. Heal the poverty realities in your mind, and whatever the form of poverty, relationship, money, work, joy, personal power, health, or abundance, and a change in outer circumstances is pulled in automatically through that law of resonance. Okay. I understand what we're about to do. Now, I pick a topic, right? Uh, what kind of topics are fair game for the worksheet? Well, you can do a worksheet on any person, place, thing, or event that resonates a painful reality in you. It can be a present moment event or something from your past or even a future anticipated event. Hmm. You can also use your own emotions or yourself as the subject of a worksheet. I could do a worksheet on conflict with women. I've had a conflict with my mom and my sister and almost every woman who I've ever had a relationship with, including the waitress. That covers a lot of territory, Richard. I would suggest you be very specific and choose mildly disturbing topics for your early worksheets. Hmm. A narrowly defined subject will produce the best results. Okay. Also, forgiveness, like any other skill, is developed through practice. The first time you use this tool, it's best to start using something less than your biggest issue in life. Your lifelong issues tend to have a lot of unconsciousness attached to them, and it's best if you can start with something small enough so you can stay relatively conscious. And as you build strength through doing the reality management sheets, you can move on to bigger issues and situations. I suggest you keep a journal of your work and an ongoing list of worksheets to be done. You'll probably find it productive to do many sheets around your conflict with women. A worksheet on being close to my sister Amy might be a good starting point. It seems being close to people is a little less of an issue than conflict with women, though that still is a fairly big issue for me. Well, normally I would suggest you wait until you've used the worksheets for a while before tackling that kind of an issue. Uh, but since we're doing this together and you've got support rather than doing it by yourself, let's go ahead.
uh, you might want to date and number the sheet. Mm -hmm. And then I suggest you get a three-ring binder and, and keep the worksheets that you do in it. In the future, each time you look back at old sheets, they'll give you new gifts and new insights. Step one in the sheet is about getting clear on the source of your reality. When you start each sheet with this reminder, it's easier to get past the externalization of pain and the inclination to either blame others or yourself. Blame, aside from a way to give away your power, is an avoidance mechanism. Okay. My reality is made with thoughts from my own mind. As I learn to change my thoughts, my reality will change. I'm seeing more and more of the truth in that thought, Michael. It is actually starting to feel like an empowering idea. I'm realizing that reality is in my mind and it's changeable. Now, step 1A acknowledges what seems to be true and gives you the space to write down your thoughts. If there's not enough room, use another piece of paper. Some people write the entire form out in longhand each time they do a worksheet. In the first blank in 1A, you name the person, place, thing, or event that triggers your disturbing or painful reality. Uh, I put my sister Amy in this blank? Yeah, that, in, in this case, yes. If you did a worksheet on, let's say, your car not starting, car would go there. If you were to do a sheet on the idea that we processed earlier today, being stupid, that's what you put in the first blank. Next, you place your own initials between the brackets as a reminder that this worksheet is about you. It's about a reality in your mind. You then write a brief description of what you perceived happening. Okay. I seem to be upset because my trigger, and then I would put down the person that I'm filling in, like my baby sister Amy. Right. Uh, and, and then I put my initials, so I, I put an RS, mm -hmm. and, uh, and what was the issue with her, and, uh, and that was uh, whether my parents regarded her as the favorite. Right, so she was the favorite. In the next blank, write your feelings. Be sure to use words that describe emotions, not thoughts. You can't feel like she was the favorite, because that is a thought. Sometimes it's difficult to say what your feelings are, and the box on the right is a place to draw or describe them. Well, this triggers some feelings of anger, uh, but this is easier than I thought it would be, Michael. Good. Sometimes the next step is a little more of a challenge. The idea with step 1C is to identify the thought you use to cause the feelings of anger. I remember we talked about this earlier, but I'm not quite sure I get the idea yet. What does identify the thought I use to cause my anger mean? What thought specifically do you think in order to be angry about your sister being what you perceived as the favorite? That's a cinch. She had it easy. I never had it that good. His voice went up a couple of octaves as he spoke. It was clear that his emotions were still right on the edge from the processing we'd done earlier in the day. He had accomplished something uncommon for a man in our culture. He became safe enough to be open and vulnerable. I'm still not quite sure how the thought causes my anger, though. If you held the thought, oh, how sweet, my sister had things so much easier than I did, and I'm so happy for her, how would you feel? Well, delighted, I guess. So the actuality's the same. The only thing that changes for anger to become delight is the thought you think, right? Mm, I guess so. Who has the power to cause your thoughts? I do. Who chooses your thoughts? I do. Who suffers from your negative thoughts? I do. It's getting clearer for me that I'm the one who causes me to suffer. 
and it boggles my mind that I do it so automatically. Whew. You know, Michael, I understood this concept about two hours ago when we were talking and was amazed by the whole idea. Now it's like I'm hearing the idea for the first time. I'm understanding how my thoughts generate my feelings over and over again, and it amazes me just as much now as it did two hours ago. Oh, I can relate to that, Richard. It amazes me each time I teach it. Life works so differently from the way most of us were trained to think. An important question to ask is, who's in charge of what you think and feel? In the past, it has been everybody but me. I'm ready to take charge of my mind and be responsible for the thoughts that I think. I'm grasping that my feelings are a result of my thoughts and the words I use. So I guess I'll start taking full responsibility for them. I'm going to be more careful of the words I use and have more integrity in the way I act. Hopefully, all these things together will improve the result I produce in my life. Great. You're right on target. And step 1D is pretty straightforward. You simply describe what it is that you want to do to punish the trigger. And punishment might be anything. It could be a sneer, a degrading thought, leaving, or emotional, verbal, even physical abuse pointed at either yourself or others. I want to punish by yelling and getting rid of Amy. Now, step two is a reminder that punishment and blame are not your friends. They're, in fact, a ball and chain. They may bring relief in the short term, but the consequences are always destructive to your physiology, the way your mind works, and your happiness. Can a little anger really hurt you that much? Richard was definitely not convinced. Well, I'm not sure how to tell you the effects of a little anger, but I suspect if we were to quantify it, we would find out that anger is one of the major destructive forces to the body. Often, we are so good at suppressing, we don't have the opportunity to directly confront the effects of our hidden feelings until it's too late and we're facing a major degenerative condition. So how about uh, doing and speaking step two, Richard? You mean punishment and blame are not my friends? I now choose to be responsible. Right, and, and remember that the mind always believes that it's right. In step three, it's time to put aside being right and acknowledge that even if you are right, the way you're feeling is self-destructive. And it's time to let go of those feelings and release the blocked capacity to heal. Verbal release is a powerful way to initiate moving out old energies. Now, wait a minute, Michael. This sounds like I have to give in to people, even if I know that they're wrong. Being a doormat doesn't sound any more appealing than having destructive energies rolling around inside me. Well, remember, Richard, this is about healing the destructive energies we carry and holding others accountable for their behaviors. Through forgiveness, we'll be able to hold others and ourselves accountable from a clear functional mind and a loving space that supports relationship rather than creating separation. To do step three, reference your answers in step one and check off the boxes and at the same time, think the release thought or speak it out loud if practical. Why would I want to, uh, to release my thoughts? If you inflict pain on yourself with a thought, you let go of it so you can heal. If there is rage or fear in you as a result of that thought, it's your work to heal the rage and fear. Remember, you get the original, she gets the carbon copy. Many of us have been taught we need to be angry to get what we want. In truth, getting what you want is easier to create from a space of love, peace, and clarity than from a space of anger. I want to feel better. I, I let go of my, my feelings of anger. 
my thought that Amy had it easier than me. My need to punish her by sending her away and being angry at her. And my, uh, my need to be right. You know, with this step, you see, Richard, you initiate the release of the stress of anger held in your body and make an important move toward high-level wellness and aliveness in the process. Health is not the condition of being free of symptoms. In this work, we define health as the state of conscious, active, present love. An absence of that state is disease and the beginning of all organic degeneration. This is knowledge that healers have held for countless centuries. Other benefits of letting go of disturbing thoughts are that you will have peace of mind and your mind will no longer need to create scenarios that justify your being angry. Richard seems satisfied that these ideas made sense and he relaxed more with each step of the worksheet. The resistance that had shown up time and again earlier in the day vanished and I think it was a relief for both of us. Working with someone who's willing sure is easier. Now step four, Richard, is the act of acknowledging how you want to live. It's also important to fill the void that is left whenever you release something. Recall we spoke about the power of words. When word phrases show up with ease in our speech, it tends to be more natural to create those circumstances. The person that uses angry words will tend to easily find circumstances about which to be angry. The person who regularly uses peaceful speech will find peace comes easily. Our words reflect the realities contained in our minds and what we are resonating or attracting into our lives. <laughs>